This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson. We have the privilege to welcome Dr. Fred Malone on the podcast today to discuss the topic of credo-baptism or the baptism of of disciples alone. So, uh, Dr. Malone, welcome to the podcast today. Glad to be here today. Dr. Malone, would you uh, briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay. Um, Well, I I was, uh, I'm presently uh, a pastor at First Baptist Church, Clinton, Louisiana, and am just finished 27 and a half years and am retiring as of September the 1st. Uh, Dr. Tom Hicks is now our senior pastor here, uh, along with uh, Pastor Mitch Axum. So um, I've been blessed uh, to serve with these men and, and in this church where God has done a wonderful work over the years and I'm um, so thankful. I've also served on... Um, uh, you know, the the founding group that started uh, what is now called Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. So I've been uh, interested in and concerned for and tried to help as I could uh, the founding of this seminary and the carrying on. And I'm very encouraged at what uh, Dr. Sam <clears throat> Waldron and, uh, and the others have done to cultivate and see the seminary blessed of the Lord and grow. So it's a, it's a joy to be here with you today. And I do thank you for coming on this podcast with you, and, or with us rather. And I've, I've read your book, Baptism of Disciples Alone, when I was in seminary. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit of your journey in the subject of baptism? Yes. Uh, well, I was raised a Southern Baptist uh, and in a, uh, a large First Baptist church and went through the different programs, attended faithfully and so forth. Uh, so I was baptized on confession of my faith when I was about 11 years old. Um, and later on in college, uh, during my junior year in college, the Lord uh, continued to do a, an amazing work in my heart and mind to kind of put things together for me and gave me a thirst for scripture I could not quench. So I I looked at seminaries to go to, and the Southern Baptist seminaries uh, in general, except maybe for Southwestern, had a lot of liberalism in it, and I couldn't decide where to go to seminary. And it so happened in my hometown, uh, James Baird, uh, a wonderful PCA pastor, um, was at the Presbyterian Church there, and I asked him about seminaries. 
because he had a strong belief in, in the inerrancy of Scripture. And he sent me that night to uh, Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. That was in 1970 when it had just begun. And um, when I came on that campus, I found a fellowship in Christ uh, that really I had not quite experienced before and uh, learned about their doctrine of inerrancy. And I had become sort of Calvinistic before that when the Lord worked in my heart. Um, and so I went there and encountered um, uh, the teachings of covenant theology and heard the pedobaptist uh, position of baptism I had never heard before. And um, I could see the importance of covenant theology in the scripture. And, and so as I was taught that, I had to wrestle with my past and uh, I came to accept the pedobaptist argument um, for infant baptism and and became a, a Presbyterian, I guess, uh, when I was in, in my second or third year, maybe second year of seminary, served in Pedobaptist churches till 1977 very happily, I want to say. Um, very thankful for that experience. And uh, But in my last church, um, I had a lot of time to study. So I restudied covenant theology and I restudied in, in that the sacraments. And, and uh, I came to see that there were things in the doctrine of pedobaptism that did not seem to be consistent with the scripture. So I studied and uh, was able to contact uh, a couple of uh, uh, Baptistic uh, covenant men and also a book, one by David Kingdon, called Children of Abraham. I read that book, and it answered the very questions that I had raised in my own independent study of Scripture about the Abrahamic covenant and, and how it is fulfilled in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And at that point, I became convinced that the Baptist position was more consistent covenantally because of the newness of the new covenant. And out of that, um, looking to scripture alone, where we are in our worship, we are to have those things that are uh, uh, given by inspiration. They are instituted by revelation, namely the sacraments. Um, I had to become a Baptist again. And then from there, I wrote a little pamphlet called A String of Pearls Unstrung. And uh, Ernest Reisinger, who was a Reformed Baptist um, in Florida at that time, read it from his, got it from his brother, John Reisinger. And um, uh, Ernie contacted me, and it worked out that I could go work with him there to help reform North Pompano Baptist Church there in Pompano Beach, Florida. And that's, that's how I entered back, back into Baptist life. And um, that little pamphlet, a String of Pearls Unstrung, was basing my journal of the change in my life. And, and uh, the Lord's used it a good deal in different people to uh, keep some Baptist Baptist and, and also to um, uh, clarify uh, even for some beginning churches, whether to be Baptist or Presbyterian. So the Lord's 
used all of that far beyond what I would ever think. And, uh, and um, I've continued to work within Reformed Baptist circles since then, since 1977. Well, thank you for that. Um, to our audience, Dr. Malone is the author of The Baptism of Disciples Alone, A Covenantal Argument for Credo Baptism versus Pado Baptism. Um, so our next question for you, Dr. Malone, is why should we baptize disciples alone? That is, those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, that's been a major study in my life. I, my service in Christ's uh, church depended on my uh, position on that and uh, does with basically anyone who enters the gospel ministry. You have to decide what you believe about baptism. Um, and uh, in my restudy of things, I came to the position that it is a positive institution by the Lord Jesus Christ as a sign of cleansing from sin and of union with him uh, in his person and work. So um, why should we baptize disciples alone? And I believe it's because this is the command of Christ, as well as the teaching and the rest of the New Testament by his apostles. Um, and, and so when we look in the New Testament, <clears throat> we see um, the first baptisms by John the Baptist, and <clears throat> they were clearly baptisms upon the individual's uh, repentance from sin and submission to God in their life to bring forth fruits worthy of that repentance. And there's generally no question that John only baptized those who personally repented. So there would have been no infant baptism in his baptism. And the same with Jesus. <clears throat> in uh, John 4.1, uh, John says that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And I think it's fairly clear from the Gospels as well as the um, <clears throat> that statement in John 4 that Jesus only baptized disciples. There's no account of infant baptism by Jesus in his own baptism. And, um, and, and so uh, we have that, I believe, a clear uh, instruction and example there. But also uh, in, uh, in the book of Acts, especially on the day of Pentecost, um, Acts 2, 38 through 42, we have uh, basically the, the establishment of a visible church. And it came through the preaching of Peter to multitudes. And <clears throat> that passage teaches that those who uh, were pierced in their heart cried out, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's answer is uh, repent and be baptized under the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter's answer to what shall we do is you repent and be baptized. And that's exactly what we find in that passage, that Peter continued to preach many words to them. And in verse 41, it, it teaches that those who received his words, and only those people, those who actually received his words were baptized. And that day there were uh, 3,000 souls baptized. And I think it's pretty uh, clear 
that in that um, that first uh, baptism or apostolic baptism based upon the Great Commission, that that the Great Commission means uh, go therefore, or having gone, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, that is the disciples, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching those baptized disciples to do all that I commanded you. And that is the blueprint followed in Acts 2, 38 through 42, of uh, upon repentance, upon receiving Peter's words, um, 3,000 were baptized, and only those who received Peter's words were baptized. So I believe it's clear that the uh, the Church of Jerusalem was established upon a clear repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, out of whom were, were baptisms given. And, um, and there's no mention of household baptisms or um, family covenant baptism in that passage. And in fact, Peter distinguishes uh, the baptism on that day by saying the promise is to you and to your children and to those far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. That is the promise that if you will repent and believe and be baptized, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And and so only those who uh, repented, confessed Christ, uh, were baptized by the apostles, and then immediately in Acts 2.42, they, that is, those 3,000 that were baptized, that's the, that's the grammar of the text, Though they immediately devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and, and to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. And I think that's a perfect uh, illustration of what Christ meant in the Great Commission, uh, and and therefore, I had to come to the position that only those who who come to Christ and repent before him and believe in him as Savior and Lord should be baptized. And then I found that that, uh, that also was consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Um, baptism is a positive ordinance of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And... Um, in order to establish and to practice an element of worship, which baptism is included as an element of worship, uh, it has to be verbally instituted by Christ and, uh, and by written or spoken revelation by Christ. And it was. And the only thing that he did in terms of baptism was to institute the baptism of disciples alone. So that's where I am at this time. Well, amen, and we we agree with you, but if you would, what are some of the strongest arguments for infant baptism, and what? how would you respond to them? Well, when I went through my uh, period in, in 77, 76, and 77, actually, of restudying everything, I read uh, most of the available books on pedobaptism, 
And uh, actually, my presbytery assigned me uh, a book that was uh, written by Pierre Marcel that I needed to read that, as they said, was the best book on infant baptism. So I interacted with those. And uh, as I understood their arguments and what I had come to believe before that, that baptism, uh, pedo-baptism, is based upon um, the Abrahamic covenant and uh, the fact that Abraham, our father of those that believe, uh, not only believed and was justified by faith alone, but also he circumcised his male infants as part and as a sign of uh, the Abrahamic covenant. And when you look into the New Testament, we see that um, both the Lord Jesus and the apostles uh, referred to the Abrahamic covenant that was fulfilled in Jesus coming as the final seed of Abraham. That's Galatians 3.16. And and that uh, therefore the Abrahamic covenant came to its fruition in Jesus Christ, the final seed of Abraham, the one to whom the promises were made, and his seed, that is the seed of Jesus, those that believe in him, that are children of God by faith alone in Christ alone. And I believe Galatians 3 teaches that very clearly. So their argument that as Abraham circumcised his children, so we as the children of Abraham can infant baptize our children um, it, uh, that argument fell apart in the light of New Testament revelation to me. I had accepted it before, like a parallelism, parallelism between the Passover and, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, that was something that I had come to believe. At the Passover, the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, out of circumcision, Abrahamic circumcision, the Lord instituted infant baptism. And that was a powerful, reasonable argument to me. But I kept running into New Testament revelation that said um, the only seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ and his seed. And through Christ, that is through uh, believing in him and coming to him as Lord, we become the seed of Abraham by faith alone in Christ alone. And, and that messed up my pedo-baptist convictions and um, interfered uh, with um, the arguments that I was reading by John Murray uh, in his book on baptism, and, uh, which was a classic at that time, and Pierre Marcel's book, which was a classic. And, and so I could no longer hold to their arguments because of New Testament revelation. And at that same time, my understanding of covenant theology clarified a difference between um, what Baptists believe about the kingdom of God and what pedo-Baptists believe about the kingdom of God. And that's another argument uh, that is strong in their, in their um, um, polemic about um, pedo-Baptism, that the kingdom of God is beyond just the members of the local church, or beyond even the regenerate uh, people of God, that the kingdom of God actually uh, is manifested in the local church, which is a mixed multitude. 
and that the new covenant is manifested uh, in the local church as a mixed multitude of believers and their seed uh, who may not be converted, yet they are um, in the kingdom and in the church. And I immediately began to see that there's a great difference in ecclesiology between uh, Baptists and Presbyterians that, uh, that, that swirls around this question of baptism, of who is a Christian, uh, who is to be baptized, how is the church to be conceived and, and uh, gathered. So when I understood that the new covenant is an effectual covenant for every member, that it has the that every member has the law written on their hearts, every member knows the Lord, and every member has the forgiveness of sins in reality. Uh, then I came to understand that only Christians, professing Christians, should be baptized, and that the church must be made up of disciples alone as well. So uh, uh, that that argument of Abrahamic circumcision. Uh, the argument of their covenant theology, which uh, expanded the uh, covenant, the, the covenants, and particularly the new covenant, to believers and their seed, though maybe unconverted, uh, caused me to step back and say, "Wait, what does the New Testament teach about these things?" As the fulfillment of the many promises. Uh, given concerning the Messiah and his kingdom uh, in in the Old Testament. And I saw that the Old Testament covenants were covenants of the promise, Ephesians 2, 12, not just covenants of promise, covenants of the promise with the article there uh, of Genesis 3, 3.15, that all the Old Testament covenants were uh, preparatory and progressing toward the consummated new covenant, that it was not just one of the covenants and the Abrahamic and the new covenant were somehow equivalent, but that the new covenant was, was the consummated covenant that established the uh, atonement and the uh, formal um, accomplishment of the covenant of grace. And that's where I took the position of John Owen that, and, and, and found out that that was actually the position of the uh, Second London Baptist Confession, that the Old Testament covenants were progressive and they were pointing to the new covenant as a distinct covenant in and of itself. It's not the same as the Abrahamic covenant, nor the Mosaic covenant, nor the Davidic covenant. They each had their purpose to bring about the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his new covenant. But the new covenant is not the same as the Abrahamic or Mosaic covenant. And, and we have to be careful about defining that new covenant and stick to Scripture instead of good and necessary inference from one of the Old Testament covenants into the new covenant. The New Testament is the final clearest explanation of how the Old Testament is fulfilled in it. And suddenly I found out that um, <clears throat> that the Passover feast was fulfilled not in the Lord's Supper, but in the Lord himself as our Passover. And that the Lord's Supper is a sign of that fulfillment in Jesus. And I also 
found out that the fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant is not baptism. But in the New Testament, it's clear that it is regeneration in the heart of the believer, that the seal of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of heart circumcision that was needed in the Old Testament. And therefore, baptism is not uh, a repeat or an advancement in physical circumcision. It is a positive ordinance instituted by Jesus by words, not inference, Uh, that uh, we are to baptize those who have professed to be regenerated and repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, disciples. And I would add to that that uh, the kingdom of God that Baptists believe in is a regenerate kingdom, and uh, many of the Netherlands and Dutch Reformed believe that, like Herman Ritterboss in his book, The Coming of the Kingdom. It's a regenerate kingdom, and that the church is to be made of those um, who profess uh, to be regenerate. So the kingdom's not the church for Baptists. It is the church for Presbyterians in their confession. Uh, it, It is not the church but the the regenerate kingdom is to be made up of those who profess to be in the church or in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I look upon the church as an outpost of the kingdom, and all that is to bring in to say um, these arguments for infant baptism uh, from covenant theology, from the Abrahamic covenant, uh, they all are based, and they they admit this. John Murray admitted this up front in his book, that infant baptism is based on good and necessary inference. That's his words. Good and necessary inference or consequence, and not from stated revelation. And yet the uh, ordinances of Christ or the sacraments of Christ uh, in worship, in regulated worship, have to be instituted by revelation and prescribed by Holy Scripture. And infant baptism does not fit that. Hmm. Well, uh, we've had a good discussion thus far where we've been able to talk about the baptism of disciples alone and uh, now the strongest arguments presented for paedo-baptism and uh, Dr. Malone's response to that. Um, but our next question is, what mode of baptism is proper and why? Well, I didn't deal a lot with uh, the mode of baptism in my book in its first printing. And in the second uh, edition, I included an appendix on the biblical mode of baptism and uh, dealt with that question. Um, There when you begin to delve into the mode of baptism, biblical baptism, um, there are many, many different arguments and positions. Um, But if we're going to go by scripture alone and the priority of scripture, that is the New Testament, to describe and to institute baptism, uh, we have to deal with the exegesis of the text on baptism. It's interesting to me that uh, uh, Herman Witsius, John Calvin, 
and many other pedo-baptists in history have stated that the word baptizo means to dip or to immerse. And Calvin believed that was the practice of the early church. And so did Witsius. And these are two major covenant theologians that we all read and depend upon. But they looked at the, the word, its etymology, its usage in the New Testament, and that's what they concluded. But as Calvin taught that um, uh, even though bad immersion was probably practiced in the um, New Testament days, um, sprinkling or pouring is also acceptable depending on the country or, or the church that you're a part of. So here we have uh, two major theologians in Peter Baptist history um, saying that uh, the practice of the early church was probably immersion, but it really doesn't matter that much. You can also use other other modes. Uh, and so when I studied the, in, into that, I found out that um, the mode of baptism uh, is a very intricate discussion, and I, I, I dealt with John Murray and Dwayne Spencer's arguments against immersion or dipping um, and in my appendix to my book. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that I brought out in my book is in defining the meaning of baptizo. Uh, there are a couple of things we need to look at in, in terms of secular Greek, and particularly Josephus who was a contemporary of the New Testament. In his use of baptizo in his works, it clearly means to immerse or to dip. And he used that word to describe the sinking of ships, where a ship is dipped or it, is, it, uh, it, it sinks um, into the water. As, uh, and he used baptizo to describe that sinking. But another incident's very interesting in Josephus, and that is Herod, King Herod, uh, had a uh, uh, nephew named Arist Aristobulus, and he wanted him, uh, he wanted to kill him so that he would not assume the high priesthood and cause trouble for Herod. So Herod talked him into going swimming with some young companions. But he instructed the companions that when they were playing in the water with Aristobulus, that he wanted them to baptize him or to dip him and hold him under water uh, until he was drowned. And, and there we have Josephus using baptizo in a very clear way that it means to dip or to immerse in contemporary uh, Greek uh, of the New Testament. And, and some of these historical uh, examples, uh, even going back to Naaman the Syrian and how um, the equivalent of Babto or Baptizo, uh, he immersed himself into the Jordan River, uh, shows that the general usage of the word Baptizo means first to dip or to immerse. Uh, but there's a second uh, in uh, Matthew and in Mark chapter one through nine. Um, if I may look at that right quickly, verses five and nine. And, and I, I picked this up. I must give credit to Augustus H. Strong, 
in his systematic theology, uh, he brought out the verb tenses of Mark 1, uh, 1 through 9, particularly verse 5 and verse 9. Verse 5 um, says that all the country of Judea was going out to him, <clears throat> that is John the Baptist, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized. That's an imperfect passive uh, plural. They were being baptized by John in, that is uh, what we would call E-N, in uh, the Jordan River. Now, um, that doesn't necessarily mean and uh, that he was baptized into the Jordan River, but in, in Greek, can mean in or into. And so can the, um, and so can ice, the preposition ice. It can mean into or possibly in the rim of. So in uh, verse five, all the country of Judea were going out to him and all the other people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized. And here's the point. Water was not being sprinkled or poured or baptized upon them. They themselves were being dipped or immersed or sprinkled or poured in the Jordan River. And that makes no sense grammatically. You can't pour a person in the Jordan River. You can't pour uh, uh, an individual or sprinkle a person in the Jordan River. The subject of the verb to baptize is the person, the professor of faith, the person themselves are baptized. Not water is baptized upon them. And the same holds in verse 9 concerning the baptism of Jesus. If you look there, it says in those days, came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in, which is ice. It can mean in or into the Jordan River. But the point of is the verb is air is passive. And that is that the Lord Jesus himself was dipped, poured, or sprinkled in or into the Jordan River. The grammar uh, identifies the meaning of baptism as to dip or to immerse. Uh, it is nonsensical to say Jesus sprinkled, uh, John sprinkled Jesus into the Jordan River or in the Jordan River. He, you can't sprinkle Jesus. You can't pour Jesus, but you can dip Jesus. And for that reason, I believe the grammar here in Mark 1, 1 through 9, uh, along with the examples of baptism in the rest of the New Testament, favor and actually identify uh, the proper mode of baptism as being to dip or to immerse. And uh, it was... Uh, it, it, it was, uh, as John Murray in his book on baptism, uh, infant baptism, tried to explain away the meaning of to dip or to immerse all through the Old and New Testament. You, you had to, he had to stretch himself very far and ignore uh, the obvious meaning of that word in the context that he used. Uh, for instance, um, 
the dipping of honey, of a of a staff into honey uh, by Joshua, uh, he would say, "Well, the whole staff wasn't immersed." Well, of course it wasn't, but the point of the staff was immersed into honey to pull it out, and and so to be absurd in these kinds of arguments about the uh, actual examples of the use of that word in the Old Testament or the New Testament, begs the question, in simplicity, in history, in contemporary Greek uh, literature in the first century, and uh, in the grammatical usage of that verb in the New Testament, in its passive form, it means that the subject is baptized. That is, they are poured, sprinkled, or dipped in or into the Jordan River. And so I believe the grammar of the New Testament, and I could use John 4.1 as well, where Jesus was making and baptizing uh, more disciples than John. He baptized disciples. He dipped uh, disciples, but he didn't sprinkle disciples he didn't pour disciples, you see. So the grammar favors um, um, dipping or immersing. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.